Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, here on 3CR. Uh, firstly, I'd like to apologise for not making it to air last week. Um, we've been devastated uh, by the news that um, we've lost Robert after a long battle to, to cancer. So please be patient with us as we attempt to regroup. Uh, today, I'll be taking the press release and then we'll be listening to a presentation that Jean did to the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at Melbourne University on Carmel Tagonski and the quest for equality in Australian education. First, let's go to the press release. Andrew's government's largesse for public education is only playing catch-up. The Victorian public education system will get a $3 billion boost in Tuesday's budget after Premier Daniel Andrews announced a program to build or upgrade more than 200 state schools. Our system only works best when we make sure that the quality of buildings matches the quality of the teaching and learning and that's exactly what this budget will be able to deliver, Mr Andrews said, announcing the funding at Thornbury High School on Tuesday morning. Mr Andrews said the funding lift would also double the number of special needs students who get one-on-one -on -one attention. This is all about every child getting every chance, every school being supported, every parent being able to make that choice if that's where they want to send their kids, he said. Mr Molino said the $3 billion figure included in the included $1.1 billion announced earlier in the year and $1.9 billion for new projects. Out of the $1.9 billion, there's $1.28 billion for 162 upgrades across our state, he said. About $350 million of that of the allocated budget for upgrades will be for 54 upgrades in rural and regional state schools, Mr Molino said. Another $388 million will be carved out specially, specifically for upgrades to 39 different specialist disability schools. In total, 11 new schools will be built by 2026, including a vertical primary school in North Melbourne, he said. That will be our eighth vertical school, he said. He said. Mr Molino said the multi-billion dollar investment would create 22,700 additional student places at government schools. No mention has yet been made of funds for private schools, but then that's becoming a very tricky subject, especially since there will be many cash-strapped parents turning up at public schools next year. Any funds for public education are, in fact, good news. But the overall picture means that Mr Andrews is merely playing a bit of catch-up in a time of great crises for the majority of Australia's school, school children in public schools. The work of Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools indicates, as much, indicates a much bigger, nastier future, particularly from Canberra and the Morrison government. In the first place, Victorian public school children received less per capita, not only than private schools, but also less than other public school children around Australia. And his latest press release 
reveals that not only has Gonski's needs policies gone, but the future decade is very bleak indeed for public schools. Cobalt writes, Gonski gone. Morrison abandons public school students. With its blatant favouritism of funding Catholic and independent schools to the detriment of public schools, which which educate over 80% of disadvantaged students, the Morrison government has completed the demolition of the Gonski funding model that began with the Abbott and Turnbull governments. The Morrison government has abandoned public education and is blatantly favouring private schools with special billion-dollar funding deals over the next decade. They will ensure that the existing resource gap between public and private schools will widen dramatically. Yet public schools enrol more than 80% of the nation's disadvantaged students, those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, Indigenous students, those with a disability and students living in remote areas. Furthermore, 95% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. The massive funding bias coincides with continuing huge achievement gaps between rich and poor. The latest PISA international tests show that low socioeconomic status and Indigenous students are two to three years or more behind their high socioeconomic status peers. There has been virtually no change in the gaps since 2006. A critical factor behind this social inequity is that government funding increases have not been fully targeted at need. Since 2009, after adjusting for inflation, recurrent funding per student by the Commonwealth and state governments increased by 25% for independent school, 21% for Catholic schools, and just 3% for public schools. Government funding increases have favoured privilege over disadvantage. With its blatant favouritism, the Morrison government has completed the demolition of the Gonski funding model. Those governments ditched the large funding increase for 2018 and 2019 that was planned under the original Gonski funding model, an increase that would have mainly benefited public schools. Commonwealth funding to 2029. Private schools are already much better resourced than public schools. In 2018, the total income of independent schools was $23,029 per student and $16,401 per student in Catholic schools, compared with $14,940 per student in public schools. Massive funding increases for private schools planned by the Morrison government to 2029 will exacerbate the resource disparity by 2029, Commonwealth funding for Catholic schools per student will be nearly five times that provided for each public school student, $19,732 compared to $4,882. Funding for independent schools of $13,063 per student is nearly three times that for public school students. Save Our Schools estimates Used estimates used official data provided by the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. The planned increases in Commonwealth funding for Catholic schools especially is extraordinary. Catholic schools will receive an increase of 
$10,373 per student. Independent schools will receive an increase of $5,328 per student, while public schools will receive an increase of a measly $1,962 per student. Total Commonwealth funding for Catholic schools is due to increase by nearly $8 billion between 2018 and 2029, compared to the $3.1 billion for independent schools and the $5.1 billion for public schools. However, because enrolments in public schools are nearly double the enrolments in private schools, the actual increase per student is significantly lower for public schools. Okay, we'll have a short break now, and then when we come back, we'll be listening to a talk that Jean presented. You're listening to The Dogs. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR. We'll go straight to Jean now, who uh, presented a talk called Carmel Tagonski, The Quest for Equality in, an, in Australian Education. And it's an attempt to contextualise historically as well as economically just what's going on with public education versus private education in Australia. This paper is called Carmel Tagonski. It's about the quest for equality in Australian education. Here's a quote. Every human society must justify its inequalities. And that's Thomas Piketty, who we'll be talking about a bit later. In this paper, I wish to explore a central question. Why has the idea of equality in Australian education, as articulated by Carmel in 1973, and Gonski in 2011 persisted, despite its obvious cleavage with reality. Now, this question assumes a number of others, of course. What has been a reality as opposed to the rhetoric of educational opportunity? And the subject is fraught with political and emotional overlays. 
So I have a little disseminate discussion. Now, Peter Carmel, the economist, had an explanation for the failure to reduce inequalities. He blamed, among other things, a paradigm shift in economic policy in the 1980s. Eminent political economists, who I will discuss, agree with him. So I'm going to suggest two reasons for the persistence of the ideal, because I don't want to go into all of the uh, funding uh, problems over the years and the way the needs policy has been gained. Uh, I want to talk about the ideal. It's perennial and it surfaces many times in history, particularly in times of crisis like we are facing at the moment. Now, we all know that inequalities in educational provision reflect those in the society itself. But the interesting thing is that since 2000, there's been a global upsurge in data gathering and the study of inequality by people who I don't call economists, but I call the old-fashioned political economists. And many of them agree with Carmel's economic analysis. I want to refer to the work in this parallel academic world. It's a whole different world to history, and yet they are doing history, these people. And I want to place the persistence of the ideal, but the failure of implementation in this political economy context. And I want to refer to four reasons given by Thomas Piketty, who is a rock star, really, in this area. Uh, He's a French political economist, the failure of the social democratic regimes like we had in Australia to prevent the upsurge in inequality since 1980. <clears throat> what are his four reasons? One, unequal education and its political consequences. Two, progressive taxation, which is very important to him. The failure of a group he calls, or the people he calls the Brahmin left, particularly in the Labour Party or the left parties to confront the college, and the strength of the meritocratic ideology. Now, there's a tremendous amount of data gathering been going on. World Inequality Database is one of the most interesting. There's also the OECD Inequality Database, particularly himself, in, in capitalism and ideology has a lot of data. And there's the McCrindle picture of Australian income and wealth distribution. Now, what is equality in education? Let's just go to Carmel. He came up with the idea that you have to ensure that the child's overall condition of upbringing is free of restriction due to the circumstances of his family as public action through the schools can make it. So for him, equity involves a child's opportunities not depending upon the income of their parents. Well, we, all of us, I think, know some of the history of the Carmel Report. He wanted to cut some of the privileged wealthy schools and was unable to do so. And the, um, to get it through the Senate, the Schools Commission, they also agreed to give bulk funding to the Catholic system and uh, every parish school was labelled as class D and later class H. By 
1975, there was a change of government. And during the 70s, a, a lot of disadvantaged schools were uh, funded very well. And particularly the state school interests who had fought for uh, their schools uh, were compromised. They were quite happy uh, for the money to go to the private schools so long as something came through them. By the 1980s, they were not happy and were writing dissenting reports. And the first person to go was, in fact, the lady who wrote the report, Jean Blackburn. And Jean Blackburn resigned when Ken McKinnon was not reappointed as chairman, but was replaced by uh, Peter Tanner, I believe, who uh, did a great job for his particular system. Now, it's the end of an era, said uh, Jean Blackburn when she resigned, in which we thought education could, could contribute something very significant to the enlightening of society. I'm very interested in the idea of enlightening society because the state system of education, as we all know, was a child in many ways of the Enlightenment in the 19th century. Uh, and that is how Manning Clark always saw it. Now, things got worse and worse during the 80s and 90s uh, for particularly the disadvantaged children. And by 2010-11, Julia Gillard came to power. She did a very interesting thing. She did take on the private schools and said she wanted their data. And that data is available now. So we know a lot more about what is going on than we did in the 70s to, to 2000s. Uh, and that data is on the MySchool website, uh, on the Ocaro website. We'll have a quick break now. You're listening to The Dogs Program and we'll be right back after these messages. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. 
So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 AM. You're listening to the Defence of Government Schools Program. And Jean has been giving a talk on the quest for equity in Australian education. And now she will go straight into her talking about David Gonski. He, he came up with almost an identical definition of equity as uh, Carmel had. He said that his committee wanted to ensure that education outcomes in Australia were not the result of differences in wealth, income, power or possessions. Now, what's the reality? Now, in 2020, a recent OECD report in Australian education is a major issue. The same with the UNICEF report. Uh, three Auditor General's reports in the last 10 years have revealed that money for disadvantaged schools has been diverted by cutting systems to wealthier schools. And in a new survey commissioned by the University of New South Wales Gonski Institute of Education, because Gonski is still around, nine out of ten Australians endorse his version of educational equity across the nation's school system. We all know it's not as it should be, but these nine out of ten people said a student's background should not be an obstacle to academic success. So what is again the reality? Uh, Adam Rodas, who has been employed by the AEU, uh, has done a school resourcing standard in Australia, although um, the school resourcing standard is uh, not an aspiration. It's actually a figure between 13,000 and 14,000 is the basis of essential secondary education. Rollers discovered that there's a 19 billion shortfall in, in funding for public schools in 2023, uh, which is a big figure. There's another figure, which is even bigger, 27 billion. Uh, Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools Australia uh, is uh, an economist who used to work in the Productivity Commission. And he's done some very interesting work. Their website is a minefield of uh, statistics. And the private schools in, 19, in 2018, all of them are much better uh, resourced than our state schools are. Uh, the average income for all independent schools throughout Australia was 23,029 per student and 16,000 per student in Catholic schools compared to 14,940 per student in public schools. And that 14,000 is a very basic figure which doesn't take into account the six levels of possible um, disadvantage that uh, a disadvantaged school should get. Massive funding increases for private schools planned for the, by the Morrison government up to 2029, which is the next 10 years. So you're going to find that the money is pouring into the uh, private sector and the public sector from Canberra, not necessarily from the states, is going to be in trouble. And here you have the total income of public, Catholic and independent schools. That's um, private funding from fees, that is um, state funding and Commonwealth funding. Victoria has only got 13,663 for the public schools. So we are actually, in our public sector, 
um, receiving the lowest in Australia. Interesting figures. Those are averages. Uh, the really wealthy schools, of course, uh, charge fees over 40000 But what's happening with disadvantage? The children who are falling through the cracks. And there's a large number of them in Australia. In 2018, public schools enrolled 82% of all low SES, that is social economic status students, in the lowest 25%. 84% of Indigenous students, 77% of high disability students, and 82% of local students. Now, these are correct figures because they come from the Smartphone website. They are um, public, public figures. And there you have it. And it's even worse when it gets to actual schools. The actual schools are at a disadvantage. 95% of schools with 50% or more students from the lowest socioeconomic status, quartile, were public schools. 3% were Catholic and 2% were independent schools. So those are the funding figures that are pretty well official. You really can't question them, I don't think, although plenty of people would. But the enrolment figures are not contestable at all, and they are very interesting. The enrolment change by sector from 1970 to 2019 is very interesting again. In 1970, there was 78.1% in, in public schools. Now there's 65.7%, which is pretty well the majority, two-thirds of our children are in public schools. But look at the Catholic sector. And they have fought so hard politically and every every other way for their billions of dollars which they're now receiving, but they haven't changed very much. 17.8% in 1770 and only 19.5% now. Um, they they had 19.6% in 1990. So they're actually less than they were in 1990. But the increase, of course, has been over here in the... Um, other non-Catholic sector, which has gone from 4.1% to 14.8%. And there you have some round figures. There still have been large growth enrolments in our public sector and in the Catholic sector, but a lot more enrolments in that sector, uh, so-called independent. Now, this is a, a, um, a lot of figures. I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm throwing these figures at you, but this is a very interesting table. It shows you where the growth has been in what schools. The growth in that so-called independent sector has been in the Christian schools um, and in the um, non-denominational schools. Uh, also in the Muslim schools, and you have had also Lutheran schools which have come in. And if you look at 1964, there's a lot of spaces, but when you get to 2000, there's no spaces. I haven't included the Christadelphian Churches of Christ or the Scientology, uh, but they are also included. They would have one or two. So uh, in, in the last 30 years, we are dividing our children on the basis of religion and ethnic uh, background. In 2018, 40% of the enrolments in Australian Catholic schools were non-Catholic students. I just think that is a really interesting fact. 
Now, Peter Tamil's explanation of failure I've already referred to. We now live in an economy with a strong market orientation and one which has undergone an information technological transformation. But above all, he said, we have changed our economic paradigm from an ideal of mixed economy post-World War <coughs> to the subject of principles of economic rationalism. Uh, the community, he said, would be willing to devote, should be willing to devote more resources to education with higher taxation before anything could be done about it. He also pointed out that there are irreconcilable objectives between freedom of choice, which is the private school uh, catch cry, and a common quality of schooling, which is bound to persist. So uh, really, there's a, a big irreconcilable tension between private and public in objectives, whether you like it or not. Now, he was talking in 1998 at an ACR conference, and there was a lefty guy there from Queensland, believe it or not, from Queensland. And he was Bob Lindgren, and I quite like what he had to say. Perhaps the greatest weakness of compensatory education, because that's what we've been offering, special education for disadvantaged students, is its centrifuge and tendency. It's turned our eyes away from the education of the privileged. But this gets me back to my central question. Things have become, if anything, more unequal. And I must admit that back in 1969, we said this was going to happen. But why has this idea of equality in Australian education in 1973, because it's the first time that as an education historian in Australia, I am aware of this idea coming up. Uh, why has it persisted? in spite of the fact that the, our reality in Australia at the moment is just so uh, different. Well, first of all, it's a perennial idea. Plato, in a state which is desirous of being saved from the greatest of all plagues, not faction but rather distraction, there should exist among the citizens neither extreme poverty nor again excessive wealth, for both are productive of great evil and the legislator should determine what's to be the limit of poverty or wealth. Aristotle, inequality is the chief cause of revolution. Justice and equality are the fundamental basis of any state. And I find it very interesting that, um, although he probably isn't aware of it, that's exactly what Piketty is um, about when we get to Piketty. Uh, St Paul, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Declaration of Independence. Um, I haven't put in the French Revolution here, but of course the idea of liberté, Quality and um, fraternity come from the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, and it came out in the Declaration of Independence in America that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the really interesting thing is, if you go in Australia to what we regard as, in some sense, um, our uh, oath, our Eureka oath, no mention of equality. 
we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Interesting. Now, I want to go to the second reason why I think the ideal has persisted, and it's because it has been kept alive by uh, 21st century political economists. They've come out of the woodwork about, about um, 2000. They are not economists who deal with models and mathematics. They are the old-style political economists of the 19th century going way back, and it's even from the uh, 17th and 18th century. We have in Australia our very own Andrew Lane, who's written Battlers and Billionaires. We've got A.B. Atkinson, who uh, was his teacher at Oxford, uh, who has been gathering lots and lots of data and written very important books and been very influential. Uh, Michael Schneider, Mike Pottinger and J.E. King here in Melbourne, who are interested not just in the, in the uh, distribution of income, but also wealth, because there is a difference. We have our very own Tony Ward, who um, is an expert in this area, with his article on inequality and growth. And he, I believe, is influenced by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who have written a spirit level, Why More Equal Societies Almost Always Do Better. And then we have Thomas Piketty, Capitalism in the 21st Century, which uh, came onto the market with a big bang and caused a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, controversy. And an even bigger tone, Capital and Ideology 2020. Uh, over here you have the Americans that some of you may have heard of. There's Joseph Stiglitz, Globalisation and Its Discontents. He talks about the 1% and the 90% and of course you had your Wall Street occupation. There's Paul Krugman who um, not only is an academic but writes for the um, New York Review. Robert Gordon is a, a historian and he's talked about the rise and fall of American growth and the United States standard of living since the Civil War. And a very interesting one, Walter Scheidel, who is an ancient historian, uh, anthropologist and um, sociologist, I suppose. He has written about the great level of violence and the history of inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st century. Now, these are big, big picture people. And here's Thomas Piketty, who is a rock star in many ways. Very controversial, but very interesting. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz and Atkinson, Krugman and Walter Scheidel. All of these people have been influential not just as academics, but as policymakers in the corridors of power. And their work is echoed in at least four OECD reports uh, and elsewhere. And there are the OECD reports. D reports from 2008 to 2019. The really interesting one is the most recent one, the squeezed middle class. So these are big picture people um, and they are actually potentially very, um, very influential. And the reason I want to talk, to talk about them is that I think that history and the historical studies are just so important if we are going to solve our current present day problems. I'm a Crochean, if you like, um, and I believe that it's the present day problems which we can't solve them until we've done our history. And these people have been doing their history. You're listening to the Dogs Program. We'll have another quick break and then we'll be right back. 
can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago, this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. We've been listening to Jean's presentation on the quest for equality in Australian education. And uh, let's just go back to hear a little bit more. I just want to talk about Walter Scheidel for a minute. He goes right into the prehistory and he says, be careful what you wish for if you wish for equality, because historically you've only got it after... um, apocalyptic events, uh, mass mobilisation warfare, which we had in the 20th century, transformative revolutions, state collapse, and last but not least, in our current situation, catastrophic plagues. So I, I, I found his book very interesting indeed. And I can recommend all of these books. I've been spending uh, the lockdown reading in this area um, it's a whole new area to me. I don't pretend to be an expert, but um, it makes sense of the last 30 years of our lives, I believe. Now, there is, of course, an opposite point of view, which is um, which is predominant, particularly uh, in the current uh, political climate. Uh, Chris Burke from the Institute of Public Affairs says we should fear slow growth, not inequality. And Phil Stein says reducing poverty, not inequality, is what we should be trying to do. Uh, Now, the agreement of all of these political or macroeconomists is this. On the basis of statistical data, most of them agree that in the Western democracies, the share of the top decile, the 10% of the population with the highest incomes, amounted to anything up to 50% of the total income in the 19th century up to World War I. After World War I, the income of the top 20% began a chaotic fall between 1914 and 1945, eventually stabilising at around 10% of total income in 1945 to 50, 
where it stayed until 1980. So there are 30 years of low inequality throughout the Western democracies. And in those 30 years, there were new social and fiscal policies introduced. Public institutions, social insurance and progressive taxes favoured some redistribution. But the revival has been since the 1980s in inequality. It's been much stronger in the United States than in Europe or Australia. And the following graphs illustrate these developments. Look at the United States, which is the blue one. It was below Europe in 1900, but it is now well above Europe. And uh, Europe is still, they all went right down from the period uh, 1940 to 1980. 1980 is the low point, and they've all been going up ever since. They're not quite at the uh, pre-World War stage, but we're getting there. And here is Australia. Now, uh, this is from the WID website, and they, ha they haven't got as good um, statistics for Australia yet as they have for other countries. But you can see from 1940, uh, the top 10% share went down. It went up, up just before 1950 with the um, Korean War and the wool check. And then it comes down again, the levels of, it, levels of inequality, uh, until 1980. And now it's going up, 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 but it's not yet quite at the um, 1940 level. Butlers and billionaires have got this uh, very interesting um, graph, which shows you the top 1%, which has similar uh, lower levels rising at the moment, and also the top 0.1%. And what we have seen in Australia since 1980 is the rise of the billionaires. Um, this is a, a bar graph which deals with what is called the Gini coefficient level of inequality. Naught is perfect inequality and one is perfect inequality. Australia is the 19th most unequal out of 37 countries in the OECD and the United Kingdom is ninth and the United States is seventh. Um, the less um, unequal are mainly the Scandinavian countries right down in the bottom. Uh, the most um, equal is the Slovak Republic, which is interesting, and the most unequal is South Africa. Now those are income uh, graphs. What about the wealth, the ownership of property, the ownership of wealth? Uh, these are the top 1% wealth share, uh, and I've got these from um, Andrew Lay. Uh, and uh, you can see that it's a similar sort of graph, but the wealth has not yet reached the same levels as it had uh, in 1915, just before the first, or during the First World War. Now, one of the reasons for the increase is inequality from 1980 to 2020. Andrew Lay argues that the big factors driving recent changes in the levels of inequality are technology and globalisation, a collapse in union membership, taxation and education. But I want to cherry pick, pick these reasons. Unequal education and political consequences and progressive taxation, the failure of the Brahmin left to confront privilege and the strength of the meritocratic ideology, which I referred to at the beginning of the paper. 
Now, the unequal education political consequences, Piketty, like Carmel, views the unequal access to education and particular tertiary education as a lurking weakness in the social democracies of Europe, United States and Australia. And the increased levels of education are a major factor in productivity, economic development and property rights. The sharp division between the graduates and the non-graduates, he argues, has created what he calls a Brahmin left, a merchant right and a fairly large, anxious, electorally itinerant class, which we have just witnessed in America and uh, with Trumpism, and uh, we are also starting to see signs of it in Australia. Now, on private schools, Piketty notes that private schools benefit from direct or indirect public financing, and they enjoy legal and fiscal status, and they should give something back. He considers they should be subject to the same regulations as public schools and they should be have an open enrollment policy, which is really getting close to calling them. Let's make them public schools, we pay for them, let's be able to use them. Okay, progressive taxation is the second reason uh, he says we are becoming more unequal. Uh, there was a dramatic rise of progressive income and inheritance taxes in the period 1914 to 45 in Europe, in the United States and in Australia. And it was an emergency response to the collapse of what Piketty terms the ownership of proprietary, proprietary societies of the 19th century or post-French Revolution during war and depression. This fueled nationalisations, public education, health, pension reforms, but it was never fully integrated into the fiscal policy by the 20th century social democratic parties. And there was little or no resistance to the challenges raised against progressive taxation in the 1980s by, for example, the Hawke government in Australia. The Brahmin left uh, he, he traces cleavages in political and electoral voting patterns through Western democracies and he points out that the um, graduates have gone here in Australia more and more to the leftist parties, the Greens and the Labor Party, and the less educated people have left and there is actually resentment um, amongst those people who have been left out of the education system uh, uh, and uh, they are questioning why it is that the so-called left are not looking after their children. Uh, the dual elite, the Brahmin left and the merchant right, he claims are legitimating inequality and there are a lot of itinerant and worried and um, disaffected voters in the uh, not-so-well-educated classes. Now, the relevance to the Australian situation, I think that um, most of the people who have been involved in all of these reports about education are concerned and genuine, and I think they are members of the, um, the, the Brahman left. Um, and David Gonski, of course, was a member of the Merchant Right. Now, the strength of the meritocratic ideology, the idea of meritocracy only came with Young in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1958. But it's very, very strong. Boris Johnson believes in it. He believes in IQ tests and he compared society to a box of cornflakes. The harder you shake the pack, 
these are in favour of some cornflakes to get to the top. Uh, and Piketty thinks that this is a very hypocritical ideology which has uh, led to a great deal of inequality. Uh, Peter Board and Daniel Mannix were meritocrats back in 1913. Peter Board in New South Wales said that uh, only education of the best sort should be given to the pupils who weren't educated, who would go to university. And Archbishop Mannix felt the same way about clever, talented Catholic children. Uh, here's my conclusion. This is my personal view for this week because I have different views every week like everybody else. I suggest that many upwardly mobile or upper-class Australian parents have proved reluctant to enrol what um, Boris Johnson would call clever little conflicts in schools frequented by those of the lower orders in Australia with, who they think have the low average IQs, particularly at the secondary level. Most public systems in Australia have retained and even expanded the old selective and specialist high schools established by Peter Board in 1912. And since free public education is a right for the indigent only, comprehensive high schools in wealthier suburbs are better appointed than those in poorer suburbs. Now, why did this happen? Because in 1961, the introduction of Wyndham's comprehensive high school reform in New South Wales undermined the meritocratic system that people like me were educated under. I was selected out on an IQ when I was 10, um, and then uh, I was educated as a teacher to introduce the Wyndham report. Um, and the selective high schools have never been abandoned because they've survived, they've thrived, and they've been expanded in response to parental demand. So this ideology of a meritocracy is alive, it's well, and it's energetically pursued in both the public and private systems of Australian education. And I think it's very significant that um, at the time that the comprehensive high schools were introduced in 1961, by 1964, the old denominational system which was on its knees was resuscitated so that parents could choose a school that would select children and reject others. Now, it's, uh, this meritocratic ideology is now underlined by the catchphrase of parental choice, together with preferential funding um, and the policies of school administrations in the business of attracting middle-class patronage. Even Julia Gillard's a Car is My School website was established so that parents could assess and choose a school based on its resources and its NAPLAN results. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR.
still listening to the dogs program. We've been listening to a talk that Jean uh, presented to the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at Melbourne University. Um, there is a question and answer section and there's much more to go, but I don't think we'll find we'll have time for that this week. But uh, it's worth listening to, so we will revisit it next week. Uh, also, hopefully, we'll have Jean back with us next week. But um, in the meantime, we'll definitely have some more voices from another seminar that the Australian Education Union will be holding. So bear with us and... Uh, We'll get there in the end. If you'd like to find out more about us at the dogs, uh, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Okay, thank you for listening to the dogs. Uh, until next week, it's bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.